on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight, Jen from The Crazy Life and Shake the Sheets podcast joins me as we discuss Hook from 1991. We'll discuss the cast, the background, and the great score by John Williams. It's all today, and it starts now. I'm your host, Randy Andrews, and with me is Jen from the Crazy Life Podcast and Shake the Sheets Podcast. Jen, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Randy. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so today we're talking about Hook. Now, you just saw this movie. What are your initial thoughts on it? Well, I am a huge, huge fan of uh, make-believe and the fantasy. So it really struck a lot of chords with me. Um, and the music, it just, it takes you there. You know, it transports you to a whole nother world. So it was very, it's the second time for me watching it. But it was just, it just makes you happy. You know, the, when you leave the, the, after the movie, is over you just leave with the sense of just joy enjoyment and childhood wonder you know mm -hmm. yeah definitely now when <laughs> when you saw the movie have you have you ever watched the show downton abbey i haven't um i've okay. heard wonderful things but i've not had the um, pleasure of watching it as of yet okay so maggie smith who's on hook as mm -hmm. Granny Wendy, um, she was portrayed in the movie to be 92 years old. And she's, she was actually only 56 when the movie aired, or, you know, when it was, came out. Mm -hmm. And when you watch Downton Abbey, she's in her maybe mid-80s now. And she actually looks more... <laughs> in the show in like Downton Abbey or even the movie that comes out on September 20th uh she looks like she did in Hook with all right. that makeup which is well, unusual it's amazing what they can do you know and wasn't Maggie Smith and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not the best with names but wasn't Maggie Smith also the woman who played uh, the older woman in the Titanic movie no okay yeah, that so, was a different lady. She looked familiar, but, you know, I wasn't sure, so I figured I'd, I'd ask. Well, if you're, uh, are you a Harry Potter fan? I am. I'm a huge okay. Harry Potter fan. So she was one of the main, like, teachers 
in those oh. movies. Okay, that's where I recognize the the name and the face from. Okay, yeah, yeah but she's um, Professor McGonagall. Yeah, she's been very prolific in acting, and she's done. I mean, she's done stuff way back from the '60s, and she. I mean, she's she's always been in a lot of films. So, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> there, sorry, folks. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great though. I I like touching on those points because it's like it's it's important to see where some of these actors have been and where we've seen them all. You know, well, she did such a wonderful job in this movie. I really appreciated um, her role was so important even though it wasn't one of the main roles of the movie but you really get gathered from the characters and how they portrayed the character uh, of wendy i mean she's so integral to the story the original wendy mm -hmm. yeah and <laughs> with peter who is peter banning at the beginning with robin williams he doesn't quite see it he doesn't quite see he just knows that she's Granny Wendy. He he doesn't realize, like, he's forgotten who he was. And one thing that really struck me that I'm going to have to watch it yet again to really catch this, but when the Bannings fly to England, the pilot's voice is Dustin Hoffman. I love that. That's such a great, great little tidbit. And then he says... This is your captain speaking. So, nice. Captain that, Hook. Captain Hook. Yeah. Make a cameo in another part of the movie. That's cool. Yeah. And it's even true with Shmee, or Smee, mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, but he's like a uh, groundskeeper, you know, outside of the block that Wendy lives on. He's uh, like a sweeper. I love that moment. That it's towards the end of the movie when he's sweeping the uh, bottles, and it makes the tinkle the tinkle sound, um, very similar to when Tinkle Bell uh, appears. And Peter gets he gets stuck in this moment between Neverland and the real world. And it just it's this beautiful moment of that Robin Williams plays where you can just tell it's that confusion, almost like waking up from a dream when you're half between the two worlds. It's just a really great, great moment. Yeah, and I found that to be true too. And seeing seeing Robin Williams in this movie, uh, it really brought back some interesting thoughts about Robin Williams and the roles that he's played and how he's he was such an excellent comedian and and yet he could also do such great drama roles and this was kind of a blend of both because he could be very comedic in it and yet he also was very serious in his role he played it straight which was cool i really found that to be interesting with even when steven spielberg he can't he honestly can't watch this movie without crying because of his relationship with Robin Williams. Well, there's a couple moments that you could just tell that Robin took over um, where 
in every Robin Williams movie, there's always those moments that he just, you can tell he goes off script. You can tell that it's completely Robin there, that there's nobody else's words coming out of his mouth other than his own. And I just adore those moments. But yeah, he played this really straight and that's not a usual thing for Robin. But the beauty of this character that really it just suited Robin so perfectly was that childhood, you know, innocence and joy that he brings to everything that he does, even his serious roles. It's just always there, this underlining joy that he has. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I found that really good too. Now, before uh, we started recording, we were talking about cameos in films or in real life. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, there were a few cameos in this movie too and one of them was George Lucas and Carrie Fisher that they were the kissing couple who began to float away when some fairy dust landed on them I thought that was really kind of funny that is a great little tidbit um, I I love that just that moment was so sweet just seeing that couple floating in the air and just to know that who it was is so cool yeah and then also another interesting tidbit was uh glenn close who actually was um dressed up as a male pirate and he she was bearded and she was locked in the boo box with scorpions and I thought that was really, like, bizarre in a way, but also amazing because it's like it shows that she could, she really had talent. I mean, she still does. She's amazing. And just, just that oddity that it's Glenn Close. That she's nowhere else in the rest of the movie. Nope. It's just that moment. It's just almost like she was having coffee with someone. She's like, you know what? Eh, I just want to, I just want a little bit in there. <laughs> Kind of tossed her in and just let her just be herself and I mean that it's awesome just to kind of see how that work out yeah and then one other one was Gwyneth Paltrow um, everyone really knows her as Pepper Potts uh, mm -hmm. now but um, back then this was only her second movie that she ever starred in she's so young when you saw because when she turns around um, and you see her as the young Wendy. And when she turns around for the first time and you see the face, you know it's Gwyneth Paltrow because it's mm -hmm. a very iconic face. But she's so young and so innocent. When you look at the just her, her face and you see her now, it just it kind of catches you off guard a little bit. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, it's just different. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. you're not expecting it, but it shows the progression of Wendy's character even and that's what i really like too so oh absolutely and just you know another moment that really stood out to me with between wendy and peter is granny wendy when she was talking with him and she mentioned the pink sash mm -hmm. and at her wedding she was wearing the uh, pink a pretty pink sash and she wished that he would have been there and he would have shown up and it just kind of underlines just the dichotomy between, you know, how strong must have Wendy been to be able to see the, the, 
boy that she fell in love with because there's it has to be that even though they don't touch on it there has to be that relationship there that she just mm-hmm. felt for him and know that he can't be the man that she needs him to be because he's just being a, he needs to be the boy peter pan that he is accepts that moves on with her life but then sees him come back and finally embrace being the man he is mm-hmm. just to have him turn into a grown-up that doesn't remember anything yeah. so for her to carry all of that in her in her head and in her in her soul how strong of a woman is that mm-hmm. yeah and it it even shows like her connection to neverland and how even with that it impacted everything that she remembered and mm-hmm. it showed that she was very strong in even taking care of one of the lost boys yes exactly so just such a strong, strong character. Like I said, even though in the beginning, even though Granny, Granny Wendy was not prevalent in the movie, you know, she wasn't mm-hmm. one of the stars, just that character just spoke volumes to me. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, are you familiar with some of the sci-fi um, like miniseries movies that they've done, uh, such as like, uh, Tin Man or Alice, um, even Neverland. Have you ever seen any of those? I haven't. I'm sorry. Okay. No, I, I just, I had to ask because mm-hmm. Bob Hoskins, who played Smee, reprised his role on Neverland, which was the sci-fi miniseries. Mm-hmm. And he reprised that same role as Smee and he got to basically fall right back into that. And of course, we know that Bob Hoskins is dead now, but it really shows his iconic nature of that role. And it's such a great role. It really is. You know, from the, him playing off of Captain Hook, it, just him and Dustin Hoffman, their banter back and forth, it was, it was so great to see that. Yeah. Lightning just has struck my brain. (laughs) (laughs) Great moment. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, that must have hurt. (laughs) So, you know, their relationship, even in the movie, is really great to see that, to see. uh, And then how Hook changes it, like Smee's idea. And he's like, oh, Smee, look at the idea I've just had. (laughs) exactly and he just rolls with it so it's yeah and then okay so when when you first see kind of neverland and you see smee go up to like the like the loudspeaker or something and he says good morning neverland and it's kind of a callback to john william or ron robin williams role in good morning vietnam Mm mm-hmm so I thought that was interesting. That is a really interesting uh, decision that they make to do that. Because um, it is. I mean, Good Morning Vietnam, when he is the radio announcer and he announces that, and that's how he starts his show um, on that, in that movie, it's, it is. It's so iconic and it just really resonates. So it, it just, that's, this movie so wonderful because there's so many little things like that. Like if you're paying attention, Easter eggs, I believe mm-hmm. is what they're yeah. called. Yep. A bunch of little Easter eggs for fans of all these wonderful actors and actresses. 
Well, and then there's even Easter eggs of things to later happen in the movie, like foreshadowing, you know, you get that yeah. in a lot of movies, like uh, the uh, window, the the window where the kids are staying and the, the, the thing that holds the window in is actually Hook's hook is oh, that yeah. goes over the window and it's his hook and then when it when they when they are leaving or when they get taken that hook mm -hmm. comes back up and he's able to take them away and um it's like it's something that you know it was showing that foreshadowing that he was going to take those kids mm -hmm. and I found that really interesting too. <laughs> Absolutely. Just all those little things. They're just, if you're paying a close attention, you can really catch up, you know, catch those little things. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Now, what do you, what did you think of uh, Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell? See, I have mixed emotions. I love Julia Roberts. I really appreciate a lot of uh, the body of her work. Uh, a lot of the things that she's done. This was not one of my favorites. And honestly, hmm. I, I think part of it um, was, I know she was having difficulty. Um, they, a lot of people have mentioned that she was actually nicknamed Tinker Hell because she was having such difficulty um, just dealing with being, being on the green screen and always having different working conditions and solitude compared to the rest of the actors and actresses. Yeah, and probably because of how they had to adjust, like in the movie, they had to adjust her size and that she wasn't actually talking to people in a lot of ways, except for a few scenes. Those few scenes would be when she wished that she was tall, like big, mm. and she was able to kiss Peter Pan. Which is another thing. See, I... I am a hopeless romantic. I'll completely own it. Julia Roberts playing Tinkerbell. You can tell Tinkerbell was in love with Peter Pan, another woman that fell to his, his charms, mm -hmm. um, but recognized the fact that it was never going to be and just stood aside and supported him in his journey to go back to his family. So, unrequited mm -hmm. love, but it's, <laughs> it just gets the romantic in me. Well, that's good, though. It is. Um, Julie Roberts also was experiencing some some personal turmoil, though. Um, mm -hmm. during With Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. Yep. It, that, um, they ended up calling off their wedding at the same time she was in production for, for the movie. So I'm sure that also definitely, I'm sure, played a role in maybe this isn't her stellar standout movie that she's mm -hmm. ever done um so i'll give her passes for that but uh, <laughs> well that's good though yes um one of the things i found interesting was that the inspiration for captain hook was actually by this reverend john mayer who was a preacher in saint george's parish in east sussex now he was he had appeared to be a first a small town reverend now this is all in my notes so he happened to have a hook in place of his left hand and he told everything when he lost it in a coaching accident 
and no one had any reason to doubt his story until a man named Smith came to town and revealed that Mayer lost his left hand in a previous career as a pirate. Fascinating. Yeah, and so apparently Mayer had been successful with his career, quote unquote, uh, as a pirate, and his partner, Smith, was in the Caribbean, and he had returned to England and became a man of the cloth. Now, Smith tracked down his old friend, and he set out to actually blackmail him. And so the pressure was too much for Mayer, and the paranoia drove him mad. I I found that really fascinating um, to know that the history of who Captain Hook was actually based upon was a real person. That is, that's really fascinating. Um, it's such a, a great character. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, Captain Hook is fictitious, of course, but it was such a great character in to pull from someone in real life like that. It just, it makes you wonder about that person, you know, how bigger than life was he being a pirate and everything. It just, the fantasy world, it just surrounds this whole movie. <laughs> it does. And uh, I found it really good. Um, Captain Hook's role in the movie is very iconic. And he has, like Dustin Hoffman personifies that charisma um, mm-hmm. that's shown through being Captain Hook. Um, but you also realize that the Captain Hook that's in this movie isn't as tall as what he appears. Ah. Because, you know, he has to put on the shoes. He has, you know, things in the shoes to make him look taller. And he has the giant hair and the hat and um, and all of it's a fake. <laughs> and it just, it's... It's interesting because even when you see their in their fight scenes and things like that, um, Captain Hook's. I'm trying to think of the right words for it, but I guess he his insecurities always keep popping up, you know, mm-hmm. from the hair, the hat, the. I mean, at one point when towards the end when uh, Peter has him cornered and he loses his wig, um, he asks for it back so that he can still, you know, keep his persona, even as, you know, as he's dying, which, you know, it doesn't actually happen. Spoiler there for you folks. (laughs) But, but yes, getting his wig back was so important to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and according to the play, Hook's hook was actually on the right hand. And in the film, the hook was on his left because Dustin Hoffman was left-handed. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting because Steven Spielberg was able to really try to work with his actors that he would use in films and really get the best performance out of those actors. And even with the children actors... um, who, you know, uh, Maggie and, oh, what was his son's name? Jack. Yes. Maggie and Jack, he got the best performance out of them 
even if you know it was their his only time to get that um for instance spielberg had you know at one point had focused to work on indiana jones back in 84 and then he shelved the project of of hook until 89 and then filming began and then in 1990 there was a draft of the screenplay and nick castle was going to be directing but then uh, Peter Banning was originally going to be 35, Moira in her early 30s, Jack was 11, Maggie was 5, and Granny Wendy was 92. In the final draft, Steven Spielberg took over. Now, see, here's the thing. Nick Castle is very well known for doing roles uh, back in the early 80s. Like, he was the director of the film The Last Starfighter. Oh, okay. And then also he was the director of a film that probably neither of us have seen called um, The Howling or something like that. No, no, Wolfen, Wolfen. It was was called Wolfen. And Nick Castle directed that. But uh, (laughs) this is, now see, I was talking about tangents. I'm going off on a tangent just briefly <laughs> because it relates to how Nick Castle was related to this film. But Nick Castle and Craig Saffin, who's who is the composer for The Last Starfighter, they had a very big working relationship with one another. And so it kind of mirrors Steven Spielberg and John Williams' relationship for films that they work on together. So I, I found that really interesting that Nick Castle and Craig Saffin had worked together very well. And then Steven Spielberg and John Williams have worked very well together throughout their entire career, it seems. So uh, I just, I really found some of the things with Nick Castle to be interesting because at some point he had to settle to go to something else. And then Spielberg stepped in and he was able to change things. And, uh, and it, it seemed to be a much better film. Now, for the character Maggie, what do you think of Peter Banning's daughter Maggie in the film? You know, she's very sweet. But I do believe that this was her only movie, wasn't it? Yep. It was. It was her only only film. Um, but uh, what was good was that John Williams had composed and wrote lyrics for her to be able to sing in the movie. Um, what was it? When, when We're Not Alone? When You're All Alone, Far yeah. Away From Home. <laughs> yeah. There's a the angels bring when you're alone. The stars are all my friends till the midnight ends. Just so you know, you're never alone. Never alone. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it was a really neat point in the movie uh, because of the emotional draw, even of, from the pirate's point of view. Like, they were able to see her connection to her parents. Like, she never forgot. Now, Jack, on the other hand, who is played by, um, man... I had it. Um, Let's see. Jack was played by... I 
can't find it in my notes. See, I'm supposed to be helping out here, and I'm on a blank too. I'm sorry. Oh, that's all right. He was in other other movies. Um, mm -hmm. He was in other movies, but uh, I think his role in this uh, really highlighted how the character really showed um, his disconnect with his father because he was so let down by the many times that his father, Peter, would like forget his his game or he would forget to see him at dinner or you know anything would spend any time with him and so that's why like his draw to captain hook was so strong and mm -hmm. so he was able to almost completely forget who his father was until he started seeing him fight and he started realizing it well, there are some really great um, fights, actually, between Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman, uh, Captain Hook, and Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. uh, but they also um, would have off-screen Battle of Wits, yeah. which is surprising. Compare, you know, those two people that you, Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman, are kind of known for their mm -hmm. personalities. Um, I guess in one incident, Hoffman was not happy with his performance and asked for a scene to be reshot, and Williams quipped, Try acting as a reference to the Hoffman Sir Lawrence, Lawrence Olivier exchange on the set of Marathon Man. Yeah, and that's another movie that neither one of us would have seen because it's um, kind of scary. Yeah, Marathon so. Man, no, not for me. No, when it involves a dentist, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I thought that was really unique because they were able to quip. Mm -hmm. against each other and then they had they had this um this was the first film that they worked together uh well actually no this is hmm yeah yep nope <laughs> i'm losing my mind today <laughs> your timeline right no it's it's just that i'm trying to understand how in my in the notes that I have it says that this was the first film in which Dustin Hoffman worked with composer John Williams and uh, it's like why would Dustin Hoffman work with Don Williams well they had worked together again on sleepers oh, but okay I don't know if Dustin Hoffman was the director for that or if he just was a star but maybe it's referring to Robin Williams and it was a typo <laughs> uh Gotcha. Could but be. But I'd have to do some more research on that. And I didn't really go into that too much. So well, that's okay. Um, I'm sure the audience will forgive you this once. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Um, another thing that I found interesting was there was a interview with People Magazine. And uh, the Roshan Hammond, uh, he played Thud Butt in the movie um mm -hmm. he revealed that the scene that peter passed the sword to one of the lost boys was improvised that none of the crew knew whom he would pass the sword to except robin williams and steven spielberg and this was another thing that steven spielberg really tried to capture the essence of the innocence of childhood um mm -hmm. because the reactions 
would be genuine in those in those instances and i thought that was so good because when robin williams when peter presented that but with that sword mm-hmm. all the boys were just in awe and they were just so happy for him that he was going to be the leader of that crew and um I just, I really like a lot of these moments where um, like Peter's trying to remember who he was and like uh, at the beginning, um, can't remember the old guy's name. Uh, What was his name? This is the marbles? Yes. Yes. Oh, um, oh, I'm awful with names. I'm sorry. Um, That's all right. Anyway, he... Uh, he had told Peter what he would have to do to mm-hmm. become Peter Pan again. Like he said, you have to f- have to fly, you have to fight, you have to crow, you have to save Maggie, you have to save Jack. Hook mm-hmm. is back, and it's such an iconic quote in the movie. But it's exactly what he did in the movie to become Peter Pan again, because Absolutely. he had to learn how to fly. He had to mm-hmm. learn how to fight again. He had to learn how to crow. And and also, like, uh, when you were rewatching the movie and you pointed out the uh, Never Feast, what mm-hmm. are your thoughts on that whole scene? I really think that was the moment that, that, it was, that was the turning point for, for Robin, or Peter Pan at the time, for, for him to accept the non-reality of things and it just it's amazing when you take the juxtaposition of being an adult and forgetting how to um, fantasize and have your imagination run away with you when you you can actually see in that moment the switch flip in his mind and all of a sudden it's like wait a minute the freedom of being able to imagine and have it come to life. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's magical to kind of see that play across his face. Mm-hmm. Really a great scene. And the kids are amazing. Their, their reactions and how they play off of them. I mean, Rufio is one of, one of my favorites mm-hmm. um, characters because you could just really see him fighting to regain control but also the respect that he had for peter and that really came through in that moment um when they have the battle of words before the feast oh yeah you know it really came through his respect but he wants peter to be peter and then all of a sudden that happens and the the switch flips and he is peter mm-hmm. yeah and I just, I really liked even uh, the way the music was brought out through that and how John Williams would bring up uh, when Peter just like picked up that spoon that had nothing in it Mm -hmm. and he flung it and the music was perfect for when it hit uh, Rufio in the face. And I thought that was just a, a really unique turning point even in the film of what Peter was finally able to start learning to do, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to change the way he had been thinking as a man and think as a child. <laughs> exactly. 
it, it's, it really is. It's a great moment. And unfortunately, later on, you know, Rufio uh, meets his demise um, by Captain Hook. Um, during that moment, though, a little history behind it, a line spoken by Rufio, you're dead, jolly man had to be spoken actually backwards by the actor as the scene was shot and then played in reverse so that the sword blade would come away from Robin Williams' face instead of towards it. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because in some movies they have to do that. And so he'd, he'd be saying the words backwards and I wonder really how they would have to do that. You know, They'd have to say it a certain way to make it sound correct. Yeah, and have his mouth move the right positions to form the right words yeah i mean i'm sure that was quite difficult and uh, quite an interesting feat to get that happen mm -hmm. but it was one you know you, as rufio i mean he was he was a pretty iconic character for the film and i mean i know that actor he's went on to do other things and uh done other roles but i think this one i think it I mean, it may have been his first role that he did. Mm. So. I I think so. Dante Basco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, you know, when we talk about, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the, the score and where it's at and how it's, with the, the music, there was so much that John Williams brought out into this film. Uh like, you know, there were the original songs. One was actually in the play in the film. And then the other was, was Maggie's song. And uh, John Williams had stated in an uh, interview in 1992 that he used music which could be also named theatrical or ballet music, which was interesting for yeah. the film. And even when Peter manages to like fly, uh, the orchestra plays music that reminds us that it's like a very fast dance of a ballet. And it's the same with, um, there's a cue called the ultimate war. And it's the same with that, that it's kind of like a very fast ballet suite. And it follows that rhythm that shows like the underlining action of what's going on. And then it makes, uh, somebody makes an intense move and the orchestra follows him with that emphasis for the strength of, of, a, of a ballet or a, not necessarily an opera, but, but more of a ballet. Have you ever seen any ballets? I actually have seen the Nutcracker uh, quite a few times. Okay. So you can get an idea of like Tchaikovsky and his mm -hmm. tunes for the Nutcracker and how even with this film, you get uh, certain key moments in the movie, like the, the little uh, triangle that is in the film, the music that you, John Williams uses for when it goes dun 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 dun. And that's all with even that little, there was a little prologue music that's included on the score, um, but it's not necessarily actually in the movie. It's just on the score, and, which I found unique uh, because sometimes John Williams will take a piece of music and say, okay, this is for the score itself. Like a random example, uh, the duel of the fates for 
Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. That whole piece, it's called Duel of the Fates, and you only hear a portion of it in the movie. But on the soundtrack, you hear the full version, and there's like chorus, and it's, you know, very, very loud and very distinct. But even with this movie, Hook, he used a prologue theme to really capture that swashbuckling adventure feeling for the movie. And I really like that. Um, there's moments in this film that it reminds me of Home Alone because he also did that. Oh, sure. I can see the, the juxtaposition. Yeah, with, with how it was like a, what was it? said, as a dramatic score, it offers extended sequences of weighty beauty in its latter half, but then the realm of fantasy obviously inspired Williams and Spielberg's involvement to amplify that belief. And mm -hmm. so it's this area of fantasy is the best one that can exist for music. I thought that was really kind of cool. Yeah, that is. That's really cool. And uh, I mean... <laughs> talking about John Williams and what what is like one thing that you can note about the movie that that makes you appreciate his music more for uh, going forward with other films that you may have seen uh, well he really plays with the swell the swells of the music you know and that brings you in it starts slow and then it builds up into the crescendos it just it just has this movement that you just you don't get from a lot of other um, scores. They're beautiful, they're nice, but this just has such a vibrant movement of of notes and sound that just brings you right into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it also like plays with uh, your heart and like gets yes. you exhilarated for something that uh, you wouldn't think that it would. And uh, I really, I, I found that really unique um, for his music, for even with this uh, specific movie. Mm -hmm. And how I was talking about his prologue cue, um, it's been argued that it's one of the best minute and a half sequences that Williams has ever composed. Even when it's included with his, some of his famous efforts, uh, so like, so flighty and energetic is the swashbuckling attitude of this theme and it's rowdy arrangement. It sets to an elevated standard that the rest of the score has difficulty maintaining. Now I found that interesting too, because mm -hmm. it really like gets your thoughts together for the movie, uh, to, to see what, what other themes are going to be brought out in this movie. What, what can I expect to out of John Williams? And I, I really found it to be really unique to, to really label it. <laughs> what I thought about this is labeling it as a modern classic, even though, you know, it's, well, now it's at least um, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah, no, I mean, I would absolutely agree with you. And the, what stood out to me the most when I rewatched it, and this time really focusing on the music, um, 
it just, it takes you to that, to that another place. And without the music, it just wouldn't have the same effect. It just does, wouldn't touch you and bring you in and grab you and take you on the journey with Peter Pan and the children. And it just, it's just beautiful to see the, the two come together and really make such a difference. Oh yeah, definitely. And so um, what I'd like to do is play this one cue, this prologue cue, and uh, we can enjoy that. Right, so outside of the trailer, there's another theme that uh, really exists for Hook that's really prominent. Now that's uh, the cue uh, "Remembering Childhood," and it uh, the way the notes bring it out is the most powerful ensemble performance on the remainder of the album. I found that really interesting too because it's often associated with the main theme, which represents flying. Mm-hmm. And like that, da 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 da. I can remember it even though I haven't heard it for a while. Um, but it's that jovial, rousing piece that really, you know, gives you the excitement of a full ensemble cast of even bringing you into different uh, pieces like the arrival of Tink and flight to Neverland, um, things like that. It really kind of shows the, uh, the themes really highlighted into the score. What do, what do you think about all that? Well, you know, the, it is, it is really, it's hard for me to kind of come up with words for it, but the having those iconic notes that really just resonate with you and say with you is kind of a classic John Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, he always, you know, we talked about earlier Jaws and the Donna, Donna, you know, he always seems to come up with just this catch that draws you in. And every time you hear of it, it brings up that movie or it brings up that moment and just stays with you. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I would agree because uh, so much things, sometimes even with modern music uh, nowadays, sometimes you're so overwhelmed by uh, the overuse of electronics mm -hmm. and like synthesizers and p pieces of that nature that uh, overuse certain parts of the orchestra and it becomes noise rather than music. And I think that's what sets John Williams apart of, from some of the more modern composers that are in service today. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, not to be an old fogey, but those darn kids and their modern music. Uh, <laughs> it does, it has a lot of um, just it's not the pure music straight from the instruments. It's, you know, it's digitized and it's manipulated and all that other stuff. Um, there's something just pure and beautiful about taking music as it is and just mm -hmm. laying it out there for people to enjoy. Oh yeah. Yeah, most definitely. So now what I'd like to do is play these three cues of remembering childhood Arrival of Tink, and Flight to Neverland.
Now, Jen, you'll notice that sometimes I will go off on dealing with only one cue at a time. Sometimes it's more important to really get the feel for just one cue rather than a multiple amount of cues because then you could easily feel overwhelmed by mm -hmm. too much music. Um, I've been trying this new way of doing uh, these recordings so that way people can learn to appreciate just like one piece of music or just a couple pieces of music rather than a full three cue suite of music. Like, I mean, what we just played isn't very long, but um, uh, dealing with say the, the theme from mermaids to lost boys, um, it really shows like a childhood memory theme, you know, because when you see Peter just dropped off in Neverland mm -hmm. and it, it reminds you of like innocence lost of what, you know, what he could have had or what he did have and how he's trying to gain that back. Absolutely. And the nature of like the piano performance with this this one cue really shows how it's kind of a a lament, you know, kind of mm -hmm. kind of sorrowful in a way uh, with P with older Peter Pan, and then it contributes to like this melodrama of what part of the second half of the score is, uh, because Peter's trying to recapture uh, that childhood, recapture what he had lost, and it was brought out really well in remembering childhood. But then with the solo performances of From Mermaids to Lost Boys, it, it really shows like this, this just swelling, it's hard to describe. It, it's like, a, it's not very uplifting, but you can feel the emotion in the music to see where he had been and where he's going uh, throughout his journey uh, in Neverland. It's almost, I would almost say that it captures his frustration because it, the way the music moves, it really captures his, his trying and his, his want and desire. Cause you know, if you think about it, he's fighting for his children. So mm -hmm. his most prize, you know, not possession of obviously, but his most, prize memory and his his love for his children and he can't it's not something he can fix it's something that he has to become mm -hmm. and the music really does a great job of showing that transition yeah definitely uh what i'd like to do is play that one cue
Um, with the theme for Peter's kids, uh, with the basis on when you're alone and it's reminiscent of that, once again, we're going back to this one theme of the remembering childhood, um, but it's touched on in fragments of Farewell Neverland, which we'll play later. Uh, but through the entire score of Hook, it can easily be uh, noticed that it has this, like, <laughs> the whole score is kind of this rompous ride. You know, it, it just, it takes you on these these up and down, kind of like a roller coaster. And uh, there's these three different themes that really uh, dominate over the score, like, um uh, you are the pan or farewell neverland um remembering childhood these are like key moments in the score that kind of show you some key themes that are highlighted for what john williams is trying to bring out through his storytelling in the music and i really like that that it's just you know really dynamic action throughout the score what are your thoughts on like uh, when the Lost Boys finally recognize that Peter was Pan. Well, it's so joyous because um, it's something that they they want Pan. Um, as much as they appreciate Rufio and what Rufio had did for them, they just had this aching desire to have Pan back and in, into their fold. So it's... It's one of those moments that, and the music does a great job of bringing you through their uncertainty, you know, is this Pan, could this be Pan, then finding out that it is Pan and having that joyousness behind it, it's really this great swell and this great movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I really like that, and, and I know you do too, uh, with just how you can feel about the music and I'm going to play that now.
Okay, so we've talked a bit, a lot, actually quite a lot, about the um, exciting cues in the score. One thing that we haven't talked about yet is the music of Hook. Um, we haven't talked much about him, uh, like with uh, presenting the Hook or Smee's plan. And earlier we had been talking about Smee and his idea, his epiphany, and lightning just struck my brain. And you hear some like mild little pieces of music in the background that really highlight the thoughts that he's having. This this little, um, uh, you know, the woodwind instruments such as the flute or the uh, different oboe and different instruments like that that actually really highlight not only Captain Hook, but Smee and uh, their relationship and how it really gets fleshed out with that uh, piece of music. Um, what do you think of, of Smee and Hook's relationship? Well, I mean, I do, I always appreciate using the woodwinds um, for the kind of bubbling villains type of characters. And I love their relationship um, between Smee and Captain Hook. We kind of talked about it a little bit earlier. And it's Smee, I think, helps keep Captain Hook from being a pure villain, you know, from being that scary, over the top, ogre type villain. Um, Smee helps to bring out just the joyfulness and the playfulness of Captain Hook and their relationship going back and forth and the fun that they have, um, the banter and everything that they have, I think just gives the a huge dimension to the hook, char hook character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, w I would agree. And uh, I just, I really like those elements of it, um, mm -hmm. how important they are. Um, and I want to play that now. I'll play Smee's plan and presenting the hook.
Okay, so a few of these cues I'm going to talk about, but we're not going to play. Um, I just kind of want to highlight them uh, because they are key moments in the score, but like, um, you know, you get some really good themes with um, We Don't Want to Grow Up, and that's highlighted in that play scene, you know, at the very beginning of the movie, and mm -hmm. I really like that. Um, but then you get uh, the theme for Granny Wendy, which is really good. And it doesn't really play a major role in the score, but um, it has kind of that, I don't know, a, a redemption type feeling toward uh, Peter's character, you know, because he once was lost and then he found himself to be Peter again. And, uh, and then he even found himself to have that um, joy even as an adult. Um, mm -hmm. I have a fly surrounding me. It's waving my arm in the air. <laughs> Great podcasting. Uh, but you know, then there's these other themes like the Lost Boy Chase, and the and then we had talked earlier about the the banquet, the Never Feast, how um, how it really highlighted Peter's um, imagination, and it really went full blown with that idea that you know he was changing his his whole personification of who he was 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 changing. And I really like that. I, I just I found that to be really elemental in the the score as well as in the movie what what do you think absolutely um in the the choice of the instruments that he uses and to um just underline the different characters it's just it's really magical um it's it's hard to even I don't think you could even take the score. The score is beautiful in and of itself, and the movie is lovely in and of itself, but together, just that magic that they build, I don't think it's... They couldn't exist. The, together, their whole is so much better than them separately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'd agree. Um, so what I want to talk about just a little bit, and this will be uh, part of the cues I'd like to bring out um, is the ultimate war, which is <laughs> now this is interesting that originally it was going to be 20 minutes long. Mm -hmm. And this is like the whole cue that it was going to be. Um, and it essentially is in the film. Uh, it's carried through this whole battle sequence and action adventure, you know, but uh, to fit on the album, they had to cut it down to eight minutes. That's quite a cut. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's, it's quite a cut, but with John Williams doing it, I, I have no doubt that he had a way to fit it into this smaller ensemble piece of music, even though, you know, it, it, it fit with like, multi-layered and it was mm -hmm. it had these ups and downs and a frantic pace that even would um i had referred to star wars the phantom menace before and that's also very familiar for that piece of music because there's some very frantic uh action pieces in that score um but for this you know it's like there are 
some pieces of music in it that really carry out uh, more of what um, John Williams was trying to bring out for uh, highlighting the story points in the mm-hmm. score rather than uh, just bringing oh this is you know this is just going to be background music and you know it's it's more thinking about what what those pieces of music mean to that person or uh, where was my lost childhood you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, I really just really appreciate the ultimate war piece even though it's only eight minutes um, it's still really good and then um, it's highlighted even through Hook challenged Peter and then Hook's lesson. And um, those three pieces of music kind of really show us where Hook is. And it has this like ranking almost of which piece of music is better uh, mm-hmm. for how we have the character of Hook. And then we have the character of Peter Pan and their ever growing banter that they have with one another um what do you think about that absolutely i mean first to see what's on the cutting room floor you know to take from 20 minutes down to the eight minutes you know i would love to to hear kind of what made him made the decisions that he did make um but yeah to have it condensed down like that um i'm sure it's so more, much more powerful having it just, just those key moments and those key um, thoughts behind each character to be mm-hmm. highlighted that way. Yeah, yeah. So I'll play Ultimate War in all three of its parts.
Okay, so overall, we've seen a lot of different elements of this movie that's not only highlighted in the score, but, but the film itself almost, I don't know, the, the movie almost has like this otherworldly like filter to it. Like you see the real world of his, you know, basic world of like being I don't know what exactly he is I don't know if he's an accountant or lawyer he's the lawyer okay so he's a lawyer and so he's kind of a shark he's kind of a pirate um, mm -hmm. in that respect and that world is very real it's very uh, even the colors for that those parts of his life are very sincere and not muted they're not soft but when you get to neverland things are soft things are colorful things are um very unusual and not your average uh, highlights of what his life was and what he is trying to be um i just i found that to be really interesting the comparisons mm -hmm. of how his life was before and then how he changed his mood it was almost like a mood change you know because mm -hmm. he he peter he adjusted what he was and realized i was really a bad person <laughs> yeah i mean absolutely he really was and uh i i just i found it really interesting just with the way things had changed for him as a character and uh, a lot of this this change really is highlighted through the ending music. Um, mm -hmm. Farewell Neverland is 11 minutes long, and it's an amazing piece of music. And John Williams really lets things go. He let the, lets things fly with like the emotion. <laughs> There we mm -hmm. go. Some iconic, uh, ironic things with letting the emotions fly. Um, but uh, he really brings it out strongly uh, in the music and how it can flow so much better. And then even with um, the exit music also, that, that that piece of music really highlighted some of, really some of John Williams' best work that he did for this score. What what do you think? Absolutely. Um, you could definitely tell the color, even the colors of the, the movie, um, the dark, the bland of his normal everyday world compared to the colors. Um, you know, it, it's absolutely reflected in the music. You can definitely feel the change. And then when he comes back and with this newfound... Um, 
newfound open mind to all of the wonders and in, in the beauty of the real world, it even looks different. And the you feel that in the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that too. Because uh, when he comes back to England and he comes and <laughs> finds the dog and exactly. <laughs> you know you see that like childhood innocence or when he's reuniting really with his family with his kids and with Moira and um and then he takes that phone call and then he's like if you've ever wondered what the sensation of flying is feel this and he throws his phone out the window yes. and it's great it's it's such a, a different change from mm-hmm. who he was and who he wants to be i really like that so um see we've we've come down to another end of soundtrack alley spotlight and um i'd like to thank alexander shebel for composing soundtrack alley's theme music you can find his work at xanderscores.com um jen uh, where can people find you? Well, uh, you can, if you want to reach out to me personally, you can reach me. Um, the easiest way is via Twitter. Um, I, it, best way to reach me would be uh, Jen's Crazy Life. That's Jen with a G. So, but if you'd like to check out more things that I'm doing, um, you can check out shakethesheets.com is the website for Shake the Sheets podcast. And then I also do another podcast, The Crazy Life, which would be crazylife.weebly.com is the website for that one. Very nice. Very nice. And you can find me through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Soundtrack Alley. Uh, The show can be found on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and probably any podcatcher that you can find through uh, your phone apps. Um, It's like everywhere. (laughs) Uh, You can email me, soundtrackalley at gmail.com, and you can check out uh, the my website, which is soundtrackalley.com. And so to close our show, I'm going to play Farewell Neverland and the end credits. And until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com. 